regulator of the majority of newspapers and magazines in the UK. I'm your host, Vicky, and I'm joined today by Charlotte Dewar, Director of Operations, and Charlotte Irwin, Head of Standards. And today we're talking about the thing that everybody is talking about, the World Cup. No, no one here knows really anything about the World Cup. So instead we are going to talk about the reporting of Brexit. So obviously it's still going on. There's a lot to say. So we're going to focus on a, uh, in this particular podcast, on the period of the Brexit referendum. So that's sort of March to June 2016. Um, more to say, of course, about the aftermath of Brexit. So we probably will discuss it in another podcast, I'm sure. Um, so let's dive in. Charlotte D, something that I think is interesting about the reporting of Brexit is how it's a real microcosm for why people make complaints to Ipso in the first yeah, I mean, I think uh, Brexit ha- is a really complex issue that's brought up a huge um, uh, amount of emotion and debate, and we've seen lots of complaints, um, and Charlotte Irwin will be talking about that a little bit more later, and um, they really show the kind of full spectrum. So on the one hand, we have people um, reacting very, very strongly to the editorial lines being taken by particular publications and feeling that some have gone outside the bounds of what's acceptable, um, either in taste terms, which is, is not something that's dealt with in the editor's code of practice, or in terms of the um, accuracy of the claims. And then on the other hand, we have a really, really detailed, intensive, um, highly fact-sensitive complaints relating to the use of statistics or disputes about immigration and, and really kind of complex policy areas like that. Because, mm, I mean, do newspapers have to be balanced and objective I mean, the, the, the simple answer to that is no. Um, the editor's code of practice protects the right to be partisan. It's a very important part of freedom of expression. And I think, you know, although some people would feel that it, at moments it's gone beyond what's socially constructive, I think in general, I would say this, this debate has, some, has shown in that in a very positive light in that there was a, a really prolonged, um, very high-profile national conversation about what it would mean to leave the EU and what the consequences of that might be. And obviously, we don't, we don't know what the answer to that question is, and we don't even know what leaving the EU is going to look like. So it's really important to be able to have that openly and to be able to have the different sides debating. But with that said, um, that's, that doesn't kind of protect anything. Just because something is someone's opinion or is the editorial line of a particular publication doesn't mean they can say it. Um, the editor's code of practice does apply to comment pieces, People are, publications are entitled to choose their evidence to make an argument, but they need to do so in a way that doesn't distort that evidence or mislead readers. Because mm, as you say, Brexit is a, an issue that people feel incredibly strongly about, and kind of complaining to it, say, is one way in which people can kind of register either their kind of discontent or you know, sort of their anger at some kind of reporting that you know they might not like. Um, Know, but of course, all complaints are dealt with under the editor's code, um, and so it's not kind of a case of just because somebody doesn't like what some what a newspaper is reporting. Yeah, I mean, I think you know, as is a total cliche at this point, um, any kind of it it was the case in the past that newspapers and magazines could kind of you know were essentially it was a one-way traffic they were communicating to the public their views and their you know aside from the sort of carefully edited letters that we published in the letters page it, it was really kind of a, a one-way traffic and as is very well known um, that that no longer is the case social media gives readers and
answer back. And I think also if so, can e whether or not something actually raises the potential breach of our code and whether or not we decide we need to investigate it, I think it's a it's a perfectly legitimate thing for people to to come to us and say they they didn't like something, they didn't approve something, they think something went too far. And even if the end result of that is that we say this doesn't raise a breach of the editor's code of practice, I'm happy for people to be aware of us and and to kind of come to us and sort of and raise concerns. Yeah, absolutely. Um, and one thing that I do want to touch on here is um, kind of the issue of multiple complaints because obviously for some articles um, around this, we did receive kind of a high number of complaints about them. So uh, just tell us a little bit about how Ipsos deals with those kind of complaints. So the, the pardon me, the, bo the bottom line is um, bottom line is that we will always investigate based on the merits of a complaint. We don't, it's not a sort of petition system. We won't be more likely to uphold a complaint if we get lots of complaints about it, um, about a particular piece. Um, but we will always try to find a sort of practical way to investigate the concerns based on the specific nature of the issue. So this is, I'm talking here in the context of clause one accuracy complaints. If we get uh, an issue that relates to a specific person or it would be, it would be difficult or inappropriate for us to investigate without their involvement, we will always investigate the complaint um, should we receive one from them. Um, in some instances, if it's a point of general fact that doesn't relate to anyone in particular, we may choose one lead complaint which represents the issue um, best and covers the issues that are being raised by many um, and investigate via that way and then notify other complainants of the outcome. Or a third way, which, which we have done on rare occasions but can be very, very handy, is we can make a summary complaint where we don't think we kind of need the involvement of an individual and we will just summarize all the concerns that have been raised across multiple complaints and investigate it with sort of effectively with IPSO as the complainant. So we've talked very briefly about complaints and we will um, come back to discuss some specific complaints. Uh, but obviously part of our wider role as regulator is um, monitoring these kind of issues. Um, and in terms of Brexit, a lot of concerns were raised about coverage. Um, Charlotte, can you tell us a little bit about how Ipso monitors this kind of thing? Yeah, so I think um, you know the complaints that we receive give us a really good insight into kind of issues that might be of interest to the general public and their concerns. Also, kind of where Charlotte was talking about kind of individuals directly affected by articles, their issues as well. So what we do with those complaints is we look across those complaints to identify concerns about sort of broader concerns, really about standards in newspapers and magazines that we regulate. But we don't just look at those complaints. It's also, I think, really important that we reflect, you know, broader discussion around press standards. So, for example, you know, there's quite a lot of research looking at standards in newspapers and magazines. We need to be reflecting that. We also go out and meet with a lot of groups who are interested in coverage of a particular issue and kind of want to work with journalists on improving that. So we kind of bring all of that feedback together from complaints, from, from external organisations and from external kind of conversations really. We bring all of that together and say, you know, is there a wider issue here where Ipso might want to take some action? Is there something that we should be doing to improve standards in this particular area? And if so, you know, we might, there are a number of things we could do. We might um, produce guidance on a topic, for example. We might um, go out and work with an individual publisher on their standards of complaint handling or compliance issues.
news. We might, you know, have conversations with journalists through our journalist advisory panel and through our engagements with editors. We're doing training for newsrooms at the moment and we might well feed those standards concerns into that training that we deliver. So there are a huge different range of things that we can do in order to kind of respond to the concerns that we're seeing and address concerns about press standards. And as I said, um, Brexit was one of the things that we were were and obviously are continuing to monitor reporting of. Um, so I just want to um, break down some numbers on EU-related complaints that we kind of had around the time of the referendum. Um, so Charlotte, uh, tell us a little bit about the numbers. Yeah, so in, in the run-up to the referendum, we did a sort of small project looking at um, complaints that we were receiving in the period from about 1st of March to about 23rd of June, um, just really looking to see the sorts of complaints that were coming in, what they were about, and all those sorts of questions. Um, it was a short project, and we were looking at, as I say, that, that kind of window, so March to, to the end of June. In that time, we received over 1,000 complaints, in fact, 1,053, and of those, about 10% or 8% were related to reporting of the EU, and interestingly, just over 1% of that total were about kind of use of statistics. Um, I mean, I think, I think this gives you an interesting snapshot. You know, this is a very small kind of sample of the complaints that we received in 2016. Also, because we wanted to look at the complaint in as much detail as possible, we made sure that we looked at complaints that were concluded by the 11th of June, just because it's really important for it. So to have kind of as much information as we can about the complaint. So it's, it's a small sample, and it was only of those that were concluded in that time. But I think what it shows is that as you would expect, really, in the run-up to a referendum, which was a really significant news event. There were a large number of articles published about it, exactly as you would expect, as I say, and it was therefore kind of not entirely surprising that we did receive nearly 10% of complaints in that time were about the EU and kind of in its broadest context, which would include coverage of the referendum. Mm, and I mean, of course, with such a contentious topic as well, I mean, Brexit reporting was kind of everywhere. It was the main topic of conversation, mm -hmm. wasn't it, particularly for that... Um, kind of month um, but you know still interesting that um, I find that kind of statistics one percent quite interesting we'll come back and talk about that a little bit later on um, and I mean really I guess what these figures tell us are that you know as if we didn't already know is that people feel and felt very very strongly about this issue indeed so let's look at a few of the complaints that we've received relating to the EU, um, so basically relating to EU reporting around the time of the Brexit referendum. Um, probably, I think the most well-known is Queen Bats Brexit. So this is, um, for those that don't know, an article on the front page of The Sun which said that two unnamed sources had claimed that the Queen had made critical comments about the EU at two private functions, which made clear her political views about the upcoming referendum. Say, Charlotte D, what happened with this complaint? So this was a sort of um, interesting example of, I, I find that it's often the case that the sort of impact of a complaint and of a sort of a, a sort of profile of a complainant is often um, inversely related to the sort of interest to the kind of regulation geeks like me of the, the actual meat of the complaint. But this was a case where this was a really important kind of front page splash headline of the sun in the, you know, very volatile period leading up to the referendum and this had the potential to really have an impact on people's perceptions of brexit and you know i don't think any i would be surprised if anyone would directly take their political views from the queen um but you know that that potentially that 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 quote-unquote endorsement could you know potentially could move the needle a bit um but it was also a really interesting complaint from a sort of press regulation perspective um it, it was a very narrowly focused complaint so 
there was um, a dispute over whether or not the Queen did hold these anti-EU uh, views in the first place. But what the complaint really came down to was the headline, was it reasonable for the Sun, taking into account the fact that kind of what people splash in their in their front page headline often won't be kind of a doesn't need to be a sort of literal truth or just sort of a, a summary of the complaint. Mm. You know, we, we do allow editors a certain of course, amount I'm of latitude. Tabloid journalism you know, is a specific. It's style you know, people of people you know expect jokes in the you know or puns or kind of silly games, and that's completely fine. And the question is whether or not this went too far, and the, and the committee um, decided that it did. So um, it, it, it was it was it ended up being a kind of important ruling for us because it was the first one following a code change in 2016 which had really underlined the importance of the accuracy of headlines and that was an addition to uh, clause one of the code saying that headlines needed to be supported by the text and this really was a sort of case study for the committee that you know whether or not it was true that the queen had made these comments in conversation it simply couldn't it was just too far outside the bounds to claim that that was a, a reasonable basis for saying that she supported Brexit, which hadn't even been thought of. You know, the referendum hadn't even been thought of at that point. But it's interesting to note that the editor of The Sun, um, Tony Gallagher, remains, uh, as far as I know now, and certainly at the time the committee issued its decision, very um, strongly of the view that this, this was acceptable and that the committee was wrong. Um, but they did nonetheless um, accept the complaints committee's decision and um, the result was a, a, an adjudication. Um, so they, they published the committee's findings against them and that was flagged as the committee had required across the bottom of the, uh, the Sun's front page. Mm, and you know, as you said, a bit of kind of fun press regulation history yeah, for the yeah. regulation geeks <laughs> out there. So that was the first time that the uh, new clause one about headlines and the text applied. Um, so as we know, immigration has been one of the really hot topics in Brexit reporting. Um, so Charlotte Yee, let's look at this complaint, um, which is headlined, We're from Europe, let us in. Um, and this um, features an, uh, the kind of picture of immigrants in the back of a lorry. Um, tell us a bit more about it. Yeah, so um, this was again a, a front page, but for the Daily Mail this time. Um, and what happened was um, the immigrants in the back of the lorry, the lorry had been intercepted by the police, and on being challenged, these individuals in the back of the lorry, these immigrants had said, um, according to the newspaper, we're from Europe. So this was a front page with a you know, photo of, of these individuals in the back of the lorry. There was an online article with a video. Um, and the, the, the article on the, on the, in the newspaper talked a lot about immigration and freedom of movement. Kind of, and that was really the context for this, for this article. So what happened was shortly after the um, article was published um, in Printers Online, Daily Mail actually received a complaint from somebody saying that, well, actually, the video doesn't show that these people are saying they're from Europe. They're actually saying that they're from Iraq and Kuwait. Um, and in response to that, um, the Mail quickly updated the online article and the next day published a correction on page two um, and added a footnote to the online article again to explain that these individuals had, in fact, said that they were from Iraq and Kuwait, not, not from Europe. Um, Ipso received a complaint. Um, about this article as well, and as you can well imagine, you know, we looked at it in terms of is this a significant inaccuracy? Is this something where we as a regulator need to investigate? We said yes, there was. It held a, an investigation, and as a result, the complaint went to the complaints committee, and the committee found that it was a significant inaccuracy. You know, it's fairly obvious, really, in terms of the kind of what was said in the video and how it was reported. So, committee upheld the complaint under 
part one of clause one, which is really about uh, you know a failure to take care not to publish inaccurate information. Um, but I think I think one thing that comes out of this investigation, which is I think really important, is that the newspaper laid out a number of steps that they did take in order to verify what they were publishing. Um, and they, you know, they were good steps. They, they listened to the video again because the copy had come from an agency. They spoke to police and the Home Office um, to try to kind of corroborate what they were hearing and also sent a journalist to the scene to try to get some, some thoughts from people who had been there. But they still published inaccurate information. They'd still failed to take care on that inaccuracy. So as I say, we upheld it under that clause. But because in this case, because the newspaper had acted so promptly and so openly in order to address the issues that had been raised through the complaint, as I've mentioned, you know, through publishing that correction the next day, through amending the online article and adding a footnote, we didn't require them to take additional remedial action because they'd already addressed the concerns mm, raised. They'd already kind of set the record um, straight there. Yeah, to readers and also to the general public who might be interested in this article. Mm. Um, so one of the things that were, you know, the most controversial things about the referendum, I think, um, and we're going back to kind of use of statistics here, um, I think most people will remember that kind of 350 million a week um, that we would get back if people voted to leave the EU. We did have a complaint about this, didn't we? So tell us a little bit more, Charlotte Dewar. Yeah, I mean, I think this is one of the things that was very challenging for journalists um, in the period leading up to the referendum and, and, and still now is that it was such a highly charged debate and there was so little territory, um, so little kind of ag agreed information kind of really there's so much speculation about the consequences both of the sort of immediate aftermath of the referendum and then in the longer term of actually leaving the EU and you have kind of credible what would normally be considered to be kind of credible sources on either side that in in most kind of you know peace times we would say you can you can absolutely report what you know a member of the cabinet or shadow cabinet is saying that's kind of entirely fair enough um, and suddenly you, suddenly you have people questioning you know is that is that taking care or could you be sort of spreading misinformation or kind of um, misleading readers simply by reporting what very kind of high profile and credible individuals are saying and this this claim um, that leaving the EU could mean 350 million pounds a week extra for the NHS was probably the sort of most um, high profile example of that. Uh, so this this complaint actually that was that was brought to the complaints committee was 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 actually about an article that was published a bit later um, in 2017, and it was sort of to me it's a little bit of an interesting example of how the kind of things move on. So. At this point, what we what this this was a, a complaint about an article written by Boris Johnson and published in the Telegraph. Um, obviously, this is while Boris Johnson was, as he still is, um, Foreign Secretary, and it was about his claim in this article. By this point, it was no longer three hundred and fifty million pounds a week for the NHS. The specific claim here was that leaving the EU would mean that the the UK would take back control of. 350 million pounds a week, but it was accompanied by a photo of that famous bus. So there were kind of two questions for the committee. One is, is it, you know, is it a breach of the code to say that, that leaving the EU would mean that the UK taking back control of this money? And second, was the photograph of that bus a kind of factual claim or an endorsement of that advertisement saying 350 million pounds a week mm. for the NHS? such that kind of the telegraph needed to support that as a factual claim so those are those are actually both kind of quite interesting complicated issues. issues yeah so uh, so uh, and it kind of really points to the ways in which 
you know, we try we try to keep very close to our remit, which is the editor's code and interpreting the editor's code. But just inevitably, sometimes we get pulled into um, into really much larger issues, and and the committee needs to try to kind of keep its eyes on its own paper and really focus on what its role is. Um, and not kind of get sucked into wider debate. So it, it looked at this claim, and I think it, you know, it was, in some ways, it was it was nice for the committee that it was this sort of slightly narrower claim about taking back control. And the committee decided that on the basis that we, the UK, doesn't sort of exercise control of the rebate, it was acceptable. Sorry, the, the rebate of money um, mm. from the EU, it was acceptable to talk about taking back control, and that wasn't a breach of the code. And second, it decided that the image of the bus was in this context just an image of a bus mm. and mm. it wasn't a kind of factual claim that we were going to investigate as a potential breach of, of um, the, the requirement to take care over the accuracy of, of published material but I mean it, it did sort of point up this, this real difficulty of of you know reporting this debate in a way that's fair to both sides but also isn't la allowing kind of incorrect information to go unchallenged. Mm, absolutely I mean um we are continuing to monitor this reporting. I mean, the Brexit will obviously just run and run. The debate will continue. Um, Charlotte Irwin, where would you kind of say we are now in 2018, kind of around Brexit reporting? Well, we're recording this on the day that the Cabinet is going to check us to make their agreement, or this today's agreement anyway, about Brexit. So, I mean, coverage is not going away. You know, it's on the front pages, on the top of all the um, home pages online. Coverage isn't going away. In terms of where we are with complaints, certainly still we do get complaints about coverage. I think there's probably been a slight decline. Maybe people are just a bit tired of all of this or perhaps don't feel so strongly about the details of kind of the negotiations but rather than the issues that were being raised during the referendum. But it'll be interesting to see what happens in the, you know, as we get closer to the date on which we leave, whether there's a spike in complaints or anything like that. So, yeah, we're very much continuing to monitor this to see if there's any action that we need to take. And I think, you know, we've talked a little bit about statistics, for example. You know, statistics don't just underpin the conversation around Brexit and the referendum. They're used a lot by journalists in lots of different contexts. And I think it's one area where we as Ipso can be do will be doing some more work in the coming year. We recently had a lecture at the Royal Statistical Society about this, but it's going to be a priority area for us in the coming mm -hmm. year in terms of kind of thinking about how we can best support journalists to use statistics and kind of in a way that's clear and accessible and reflects what the statistics are actually saying. Indeed. I mean, I smell another podcast coming on from here. Um, I think probably that's all we've got time for today, um, although I'm sure that we probably will do some more work around this. Um, but we'd love to know what you think. So please do get in touch with us on Twitter and Facebook. We're at Ipso News. And thank you to Charlotte and Charlotte for joining me today. And next time, we will be doing a podcast with Senior Complaints Officer Hugo Wallace, who will be telling us all about the history of press regulation.